The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. Today's interview is the second part of a two-part conversation with Jason Hickel on his book Less is More, How Degrowth Will Save the World. We talked about the concept of green growth and why the notion of decoupling growth from intensive resource use is ultimately unconvincing. We also chatted about the Green New Deal and whether it is compatible with the politics of degrowth. And finally, we talked about Jason's argument that a green energy and resource transition, if undertaken with no challenge to the growth imperative of capitalism, could pave the way for radically increased exploitation of workers. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books. At this momentous time for global politics, Verso Books bring you radical voices that challenge capitalism, debate the future of the planet and work towards real political change. You can support their radical publishing by becoming a member of their book club. By joining, you'll receive all their new books every month in ebook format, and there are options to receive a curated selection of books delivered to your home. Their December book club selections include titles from Tariq Ali, Ellen Makesins Wood, and Kamari Jayawardena. Membership is currently 50% off for the first three months. Go to versobooks.com to find out more. And now to today's interview. Jason Hickel is an economic anthropologist and author. He's professor at the Institute for Environmental Science and Technology at the Autonomous University of Barcelona and visiting senior fellow at the International Inequalities Institute at the London School of Economics. His writing has appeared in The Guardian, Al Jazeera and Foreign Policy, amongst other venues. His most recent book, which was the topic of our conversation, is Less is More, how degrowth will save the world. So when we spoke last time, it was shortly before COP26, the, uh, the 26th United Nations Climate Change Conference held in Glasgow. And you gave a pretty downbeat assessment at the time of, of previous climate summits uh, and also your expectations for COP26. Were the outcomes of the conference as, as bad as you'd expected? And do you see anything positive in terms of at least the commitment that's made in the in the Glasgow Climate Pact that explicitly pledges to reducing the use of coal, although of course the term phase down was substituted for phase out. Yeah, no, I, I'm very disappointed in the in the COP. I consider it to be very clearly a failure. And that's evidence if you just look at the at the at the data that we have on this, right? So if you add up all the countries' pledges that they've made before and then also during Glasgow, so this is the most up-to-date data that we have then it brings us to, to on average, about 2.4 degrees of global warming, which is significantly an overshoot of the Paris Agreement, right? So it violates the Paris Agreement and could bring us to up to three degrees, which is catastrophe. And then the existing policies that we have, because remember, pledges are easy to make, right? Policies are another matter. <laughs> the existing policies we have 
have us now headed for 2.7 degrees and as high as 3.6 degrees. And this is just a minor improvement since, uh, since prior to Glasgow. And so again, this is, I mean, this is a, de- a degree of warming that is not compatible with human civilization as we know it. So this is really bad. <laughs> and um, what's even more remarkable, actually, is that, is that the pledges they've committed to don't even bring us to reducing global emissions at all in the next 10 years. And we know that in order to stay under 1.5 degrees, we have to reduce emissions globally in half in the next 10 years. And so this... They're just pledging to slow down, but not to reduce. Yeah, I mean, effectively, exactly. That's right, as far as the next 10 years go. And what that means is that 1.5 degrees, according to this, according to Glasgow, 1.5 degrees is gone. And, that, and that's, that's a disaster, and it's a slap in the face of, uh, of climate justice principles and the movements all around the world that have been fighting for that. So I think that's, that's, that's very bad. Now, to the question of, of phasing down coal instead of phasing out coal, this is interesting to me. Now, uh, there's a lot of blame being focused on India in particular for this and some crocodile tears being cried by the, by the UK. Now, but what's interesting is that the fossil fuels that the global north relies on, namely oil and gas, there's not even language about phasing down oil and gas in their commitments, much less phasing out. And so it's it's a total ruse, it's a total ruse, right? To sort of blame India for phasing down instead of phasing out when the key fossil fuels that the global north uses are not even phasing down. <laughs> right. So this is crazy. And I just don't I just don't get how this was not picked up as a problem in the Western media, although of course it was in global south media. And that just shows you the blinkers that we have in terms of our perspective on this. And so the fact is this, right? Like the results of these COP meetings will effectively mean nothing until we have a binding agreement that caps fossil fuel use and scales it down in a, on a scientific schedule in a just and equitable way, right? And for rich countries, that means winding down all fossil fuel use to zero in roughly the next 10 years. I mean, think about the ambition of that, right? That's, that's uh, 10% cuts in fossil fuel use per year. That's what we need to be talking about. And rich countries are just nowhere near that conversation. I mean, no one's talking about a cap on fossil fuel use at all. And so the distance between where we need to be and where these negotiations bring us is monumental. And we should be very concerned about that. It's not okay at this stage in the game, 2021, that there's still this kind of gap. It's, it's a disaster. So we need to be demanding our leaders scale up their ambition significantly. And that's just the fact. Do you find it at all surprising that, as well as perhaps, you know, the sort of more, more knotty and difficult issue of changing to a different energy system, that a lot of the seemingly more low-hanging fruit also isn't addressed? I mean, you know, we still have, you know, SUVs, uh, you know, running around. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm talking to you from London and England notoriously has appalling housing stock with badly insulated homes. It's, you know, there are still houses with you know, single glass windows. And, you know, obviously this isn't necessarily the biggest stuff, but it's, it's you know, I remember talking to Andreas Marm and he was talking about how just demoralizing it is that the fact that these very minor things are not being done. What, why do you think even that isn't being achieved? Yeah, that's, it's, it is remarkable. Um, so the SUV thing uh, is like, a, <laughs> is like a, a very obvious issue that needs to be addressed. And this is like a, 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 it's something that degrowth scholars have been pointing out for some time now, right? Like when it comes to, the question of energy demand. We, we have to address the question of energy demands. And so that means getting rid of forms of energy demand that are socially unnecessary. And SUVs are just an obvious example of that. Private jets also, things like that, right? And so, I mean, this is very easy, low-hanging fruit and should be obvious. And it, it is demoralizing that it's not. 
but, but just to revert, I mean, also demoralizing is the fact that, <laughs> that again, we have these climate summits that never actually cap fossil fuels. Instead, there's this shift in the, in the discourse, right, away from fossil fuels and towards emissions. Now, that might seem sort of fine, but it opens the door to all of these net zero pledges, which are very sketchy because the assumption in these net zero pledges is basically we're going to keep using fossil fuels and keep emitting carbon through the rest of the century, maybe even, and just hope that we have technology to sort of pull emissions out of the atmosphere later on. And so there's, there's lots of room for fudging there when, when you talk about emissions instead of fossil fuels. And so this is why I say, as a matter of urgency, we have to be talking about about capping fossil fuels, but also in addition to the demand reduction strategies that are low-hanging fruit. And just going back to, to, to COP26 itself, I mean, and in terms of where blame ought to be apportioned, I mean, as you say, there is this clearly this effort to pin the blame on, on countries in the global south and to sort of position coal as this sort of dirty fuel that is increasingly identified with, with poorer countries and not, not with the richer nations. But obviously, a country like India, it's, it's run by you know, a nationalist party, some would say quasi-fascist in, in the case of the BJP. It's extremely friendly to domestic business interests in, in India. So do you think there's a danger of positioning things simply in a kind of north-south, perpetrators in the north and victims in the south kind of a way? I mean, look, in terms of just the, the raw facts of overshoot emissions, okay, so if we look at like countries' contributions to exceeding their fair share of the planetary boundary, which is... 350 parts per million concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere, it's patently evident that global north countries are overwhelmingly responsible for climate breakdown. So the analysis we published in The Lancet finds that the rich countries of the global north are responsible for 92% of excess emissions. So, so that's, that's just a fact. <laughs> now, and India, for example, is actually way under its fair share limits of emissions. Now, this is not to say that global South countries should not ramp up ambition as much as possible. It's simply to say that without real leadership from the global North here, then it, it, it's not like a meaningful conversation, right? Like we're going to have to see that kind of leadership from the North before we can reasonably expect dramatically increased ambition in the global South. And furthermore, that ambition is going to, is, is going to be contingent on access to fair financing for the transition and also access to to the, the necessary technologies, which is going to require suspensions on patents for, say, renewable energy technology, and also um, you know, cash transfers that will enable renewable energy build-out in the global south, et cetera. So we have to have strong commitments on, on that justice dimension before we can expect rapid decarbonization in the south. So, so the answer is both, right? Like We have to recognize the severe inequalities in north-south responsibility. Particularly historically, I suppose, as well as in the contemporary situation, yeah. That's right. But we also have to be calling for, um, at the same time, calling for, for all countries to scale up ambition as much as possible. I mean, that's, that's the situation we're in. Going back to the book, so you describe how you had at one time been somewhat taken with the concept of, of green growth and, and, and the possibility that we could appropriately respond to the climate crisis and the broader ecological crisis that we're facing while still growing the world economy. And part of the rationale for green growth is, is this idea that, as you describe in the book, that technological advances would allow us to decouple GDP growth from material throughput. So we could have more economic growth whilst at the same time reducing the amount of stuff that we're, we're digging out of the ground, whether that's fossil fuels or, or metals and minerals for industrial production. Can you talk about the period when you were a little more persuaded by those, those arguments and what changed? Yeah, so in terms of my... my personal intellectual history on this. 
I mean, for for most of my career before I started working on this research about eight, ten years ago, then I was I was basically a kind of Keynesian, I suppose you might say. <laughs> you know, like most like many progressive economists are, like say Paul Krugman. Paul Krugman was uh, I looked up to him as as making sort of interesting and valid arguments. Like all of us kind of assumed, and this is true even of many Marxist economists, that growth is like necessary for a stable economy and to improve living standards, et cetera, et cetera. And so even rich nations, of course, should have perpetual growth. And then I was confronted with the reality that uh, this is just, um, this is ecologically deeply problematic, right? So when you look at like the energy use data, the resource use data, then it becomes clear this is not a feasible strategy. But in order to retain the assumption that growth is necessary, right, then you have to fall back on some theory, some hope that growth can be decoupled from resource use and energy use, from environmental impact more broadly, I guess, generally. And so like everybody else <laughs> in, the, in that space, like I basically, I basically just bought into this hope because it's the only way to reconcile that preconceived notion of the necessity of perpetual growth with our ecological reality. And so it becomes like a key article of faith, right? And so any economist that is confronted with the reality of ecological breakdown will fall back on some theory of, of green growth because it's the only way they can, they can square this, this, uh, this problem. Now, what's interesting is that this idea of green growth sounds so fresh and compelling and like, yeah, we should try that. But the reality is that this idea has actually been around for half a century now, right? So it, it was sort of articulated very clearly in the 1970s. And ever since then has always been promising that salvation is basically just around the corner, right? Like, don't worry, our technological improvements and our efficiency gains will lead to an absolute decoupling of GDP from environmental impacts and save the day, right? And then, right, but of course it's never happened. <laughs> but then in, uh, in 2009, 2010, this idea got a really big boost by the OECD which put together like a green growth platform and got, it, got countries to commit to green growth policies. And then it became a central concept in like the Rio plus 20 summit and so on in 2012. And then what's interesting is that, okay, so the, the idea is out there. Everyone's talking about it. Everyone's just assuming it's going to work. Now we have a decade since then, and we have robust evidence to test the hypothesis and there have been several scientific reviews of the existing evidence, and the news, unfortunately, is not good. So we know for a fact now that there is no evidence for an absolute decoupling of GDP from resource use in the existing empirical record. And furthermore, so, so that's the existing historical record, and furthermore, in the modeled projections we have of the future going to 2050 and beyond, there's no evidence that even in high-efficiency scenarios, so scenarios with very radical assumptions about efficiency improvements and technological change. Even under those conditions, we do not see an improvements. We do not see uh, green growth achieved. No absolute decoupling of GDP from resource use. So this basically closes the lid on green on green growth optimism in terms of the GDP resource relationship. And I think that's just so important to know is that it's just it doesn't exist. It's not a thing. There's no empirical evidence to back up green growth narratives. And if we're going to be scientific about this, we have to be able to, to grapple with that reality. Now, with, with emissions, it's, some, it's somewhat different. Uh, there is an absolute decoupling of GDP from emissions in many high-income nations, and that's been happening for several years. So a situation where you have rising GDP but declining emissions, even when correcting for trade. Right? And we've known about this for a long time. And that's simple, of course. The, the answer is basically, as you shift to renewable energy, then you can absolutely decouple GDP from emissions. The problem is this, is that, <laughs> is that we cannot do so quickly enough 
to stay under 1.5 or 2 degrees if high-income nations continue to pursue growth at the same time. Okay, so this is the pinch point here. The reason is because the more we grow the economy, the more energy demand increases, okay? And the more that energy demand increases, the more difficult it is to decarbonize the energy system in the short time we have left. So it's, it's really like a speed, it's a speed question. And here too, the literature is very clear on this, that uh, the rates of decarbonization that are necessary for us to stay under 1.5 or 2 degrees are not compatible with continued growth in high-income nations. It requires high-income nations to actively reduce energy demands. And of course, by reducing energy demands, you can decarbonize much more quickly. And so this is the key thing to, to know with respect to the question of GDP and emissions. If we want to decarbonize fast enough for 1.5 or 2 degrees, then high-income nations need to, uh, need to abandon growth as an objective. We lay this argument out in a recent piece in Nature Energy, which reviews the relevant evidence on this, in case your listeners are interested in taking a look. What are the implications of that view for something like the Green New Deal? Because some left critics of degrowth point out that, of course, the Green New Deal would entail a, a pretty serious ramping up of industrial production in order to roll out renewable technologies at scale. Would you be opposed to the, the Green New Deal on that basis? Or, or, or rather, would you advocate for a short-term increase in production and growth in those areas in order to then be better able to scale down and, and, and phase out fossil fuels and all kinds of wasteful industrial production that doesn't really need to be happening. Yeah, so it's useful to think about this in terms of just real resources, right? So so take the US and the UK, they have very high levels of per capita resource use. I mean, four times over the sustainable level, right? So that needs to be reduced. And, and this is what we call for. And we know that the decoupling is not going to get us there. Okay, so that's the reality. Now, the Green New Deal, I back, right? In the sense of we know that we need a, a policy-driven rollout of renewable energy technology, public transits, things like that, okay? And that is going to require and entail growth in those sectors, right? Resources are going to be devoted to that. We're going to need a ramp up of resources for those sectors. But at the same time, we need to be reducing aggregate resource use. And so what does that mean? It simply means that we have to scale down resources in less necessary sectors of the economy. So think about sectors that we don't actually need. Again, things like SUVs, private jets, the military industrial complex, et cetera, et cetera, you know, advertising, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to have to have a scale down of that in order to be able to, to roll out the capacity increases that we need for the Green New Deal, while at the same time not blowing the carbon budgets and not continuing to eviscerate our planet's ecosystems with um, additional resource use. So, so both can be accomplished. And, 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 and what this means is we, we simply need a, a Green New Deal that is post-growth, right? A Green New Deal that does not see growth as an objective in and of itself. A Green New Deal that focuses on the concrete tasks of decarbonization, as well as improving human well-being, and we know that can be done without growth in rich nations. And so that should be the objective. Are you at all surprised by the form the debate over degrowth takes on, on the left? Because what's often attributed to those making a case for degrowth is that they are arguing for almost a sort of austerity politics, that they're opposed to infrastructure spending, opposed to planning. Even the word, you know, Thatcherism gets thrown around in, in relation to degrowth. Does that surprise you or, or do you think it's, it's understandable given the history of the Green Movement where there has always been a Malthusian element and, and strands of, of, of the Green Movement that are quite sort of hostile to the interests of, of, of ordinary working people? 
Yeah, it's interesting. Look, clearly there are reactionary tendencies in the environmentalist movements that are totally inattentive to issues of class, and that's just honestly just bad environmentalism. <laughs> now, the uh, the critique of degrowth on these grounds is absurd because degrowth actually emerges from from eco-socialist thoughts and has a strong critique of existing sort of bourgeois environmentalism. The claim that degrowth is about some kind of eco-austerity is ridiculous because we in fact call for exactly the opposite, right? So, so austerity, and this is important, austerity is a, um, a tactic of capitalism. It's a child of capitalism. It's a child of growthism, actually. So austerity is what happens when y- y- you know, your economy is struggling to grow. You need to cut, like the idea is we have to cut wages and welfare, et cetera, in order to force people into the labor market to be more productive and generate the conditions for growth and capital accumulation again. And this, of course, generates uh, tremendous misery for the working class, right? What degrowth calls for is exactly the opposite. We want strong social policy that um, organizes the economy around provisioning of key public goods, so expanding public goods, dramatic reductions in inequality, right, in order to ensure that all people have access to what is necessary for good living, right? So it's exactly the opposite of austerity. Like, it's, it's an improved social contract. It's an, it's an improved public provisioning system. It's significantly reduced inequality. It's eliminating poverty. All so that we can ensure people have the resources they need to live good lives. And then the less necessary parts of the economy, i.e. the parts that are organized around capital accumulation and elite consumption, we will scale those down, right? So this is dramatically divergent from the assumption of degrowth as a kind of austerity narrative. And you can cure that assumption by simply reading any shred of degrowth literature, <laughs> which attacks that you know, idea more or less immediately. So you know, when I see this allegation made on Twitter and so on, I'm just like, look, I mean, you just haven't engaged at all. You haven't read a shred of what has been written on this. And so it's, it's simply disinformation is the truth of it. That's interesting. I mean, because I I don't know the literature, you know, anything like as well as you do, of course. And so I sort of wondered, well, maybe there is a strand of degrowth literature that is like that. And maybe I just haven't encountered it because otherwise, you know, you, reading some of those critiques, the, the straw manning is pretty, it's pretty remarkable. For some people that they, they might assume immediately that degrowth sounds like a kind of reduction in well-being. And this is understandable given like the, uh, given the, the force of the propaganda of growthism, Right. I mean, ultimately, this is an ideological terrain where what's actually at stake is the interests of capital, of, of capital accumulation and elite consumption, etc. That's what's actually going on when we talk about growth. And yet it's frames, like when it's framed as growth, then, uh, then it sounds so obviously good. It sounds like it's benefiting people, the working class, wages, livelihoods, etc., etc. And so to think about degrowth, people will immediately assume, oh, this is going to negatively affect me. But I think this is an effect, ultimately, of a strong ideological project that has tried to cast growthism as good for ordinary people, when in fact the objective is to be good for capital, right? Like GDP growth is ultimately not a measure of the well-being of people, it's a measure of the well-being of capitalism. And what we're arguing for is that we can organize the economy around, around human well-being and ecological stability, achieving strong social outcomes that outstrip even what we see in high-income nations today, but without growth. Growth is simply not necessary. Like an increase in commodity production and consumption on the aggregate scale is not necessary. What's necessary is, is a fair distribution of existing resources and income. Uh, that's the key. Is it possible that to some extent people are intuiting the radicalism of the degrowth position, which maybe doesn't always come across because degrowth isn't necessarily identified with being 
solely an anti-capitalist position, but but in your book, it's pretty clear that there is no compatibility between capitalism and, and a project of degrowth. And so really, we're talking about a, a leap into an entirely different social system. In the book, you describe an economic system where production is done on the basis of use value rather than exchange value. And that sounds a lot like communism. And, and that's maybe what we, you know, we need to be heading towards. But that is pretty radical. And, and the prospects of getting there are obviously going to be extremely difficult and extremely disruptive. Yeah, okay. Um, let's think about this for a while. So, so yeah, so the way that I want to frame it in Less is More is basically to say, look, when we confront the reality of the problem that we face, then when we start thinking about sort of clear-headed solutions to that problem, then something like a post-capitalist society emerges into view and becomes quite thinkable, right? And this is important because I think that when a lot of people hear like, oh, we need to abolish capitalism or overthrow capitalism, then this is a very scary thought because what, you know, what system will, will we replace it with, right? Nothing sounds particularly good. And also it just seems like kind of a void. Like who wants that kind of massive disruption, et cetera, et cetera. Somebody might react that way. My argument is that, is that by taking concrete steps to address the specific problems that we face, then a post-capitalist society emerges and is not only thinkable, but also like it works for people in obvious ways, right? So let me describe what I mean here just very briefly. Once we realize that green growth is not going to save us, then you know, this is why ecological economists increasingly call for a, t- a fundamentally different approach which we refer to as degrowth, right? And the idea is very simple. Instead of assuming that all sectors of the economy must grow all the time, then we should have an open democratic conversation about what sectors we actually want to improve, obviously, things like healthcare access, you know, public transits, renewable energy. I mean, things that we clearly need right now. And what sectors are, are socially less necessary and should be scaled down, right? And I've mentioned SUVs, private jets, advertising. There's many more. Industrial beef, fast fashion is a huge one. I mentioned the military industrial complex, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Like just ask anyone what sectors are clearly not necessary and they'll be able to list them. In addition, also things like ending the practice of planned obsolescence, whereby companies produce products that are designed to break down in order to increase turnover and profits. This obviously can be ended and therefore for example, if we if our products lasted products lasted twice as long, then we would be able to consume half as many of them without any loss of access to the use value, right? And that would have a significant positive impact in terms of resource use and energy use, et cetera. Okay, so scale down unnecessary forms of production. We can all agree that that sounds reasonable, particularly in the face of a climate and ecological emergency, right? <laughs> the question that people will raise is fine, but what about livelihoods? If you scale down SUV production, for example, what about all the jobs that are going to be lost in that, you know, from that industry? And the solution to this is very simple. You know, as your economy requires less labor in order to produce the things that you need, then you shorten the working week and distribute necessary labor more evenly. Therefore, you solve the problem of unemployment, right? Without the need for any additional growth, <laughs> you can literally solve the problem of unemployment immediately, right? You distribute income more fairly, right? Because again, and this is, this is important to recognize, people will often ask me, in a degrowth context, will we have enough income to buy the things that we need? And the answer to this is yes, by definition. And the reason is because income is simply the obverse of prices, of the prices of all the stuff that we produce in the economy, okay? They're literally by definition equivalents. And so as long as you are producing the things that, you, that people need, 
then there will by definition always be enough income to buy those things. Okay, So if we get rid of SUV production and aggregate income goes down, that's okay because there's still exactly enough income to buy all the other things that the economy produces. It is solely a question of distribution. Okay, And so this is where a fair distribution of income becomes so essential. We have to ensure that everyone has access to the purchasing power necessary to get the goods that they need to live good lives. Okay, And as part of this, we should also talk about decommodifying key goods, like the key social sector, okay? Not just healthcare, and uh, you know, like like is true in the UK, although increasingly less so. Wow, yeah. <laughs> but also, <laughs> but also education. Currently trying to find a, a, an NHS dentist, not having much luck. <laughs> <laughs> right, I know, right? You know, education, housing, energy, water, transportation, internet—like all of the things that are necessary for survival. Okay, these should be decommodified, taken out of the market, and you know, so that we can ensure universal access to these things. Okay. So this, the, the social sector, as it were, is decommodified. So this ensures that you're able to dramatically reduce excess energy and, and resource use in the economy, while at the same time ensuring that everyone has access to the resources they need to live good lives, right? So basically, you're reorganizing economic capacity around meeting human needs rather than around growthism and capital accumulation. And this allows you to bring the economy back into balance with planetary boundaries, while also achieving dramatic reductions in emissions compatible with 1.5 degrees because you're significantly reducing energy use. And remember, the less energy we use, the easier it is to decarbonize the energy system. So effectively, this is what we're after, right? A kind of eco-social economy. You know, what does it look like? It's, it's fairer. There's a lot less inequality. Our products last longer. We, we're working less in wage labor. Our livelihoods and well-being are a lot better et cetera, et cetera. And that's what we're calling for. And it's not scary at all. It sort of makes a lot of sense, actually, when you explain it to people this way. You mentioned communism. It really depends on what you mean here. Like, like what we're talking about when we talk about eco-social policy is basically, if you've decommodified the core social sector, then sure, why not let markets organize provisioning in the rest of the economy, right? Like we're not talking about, you know, decommodifying beer production or something like that, right? <laughs> you know, companies can provide beer or thimbles or whatever, <laughs> or whatever you might need, right? In the market. But, but note this, is that having decommodified the core social sector, wages will improve. And also, again, this is true also if you eliminate unemployment with a shorter working week. Wages will improve. And that puts a significant pinch on capital accumulation. It makes it very difficult for firms to accumulate capital and therefore, what you end up with is a decommodified social sector. Markets provision the rest of the economy, but these are markets without capitalism, okay? Because capital accumulation is, becomes, is no longer the objective because it's effectively impossible to achieve under conditions of justice and fairness. And so, you know, call it what you want. I like to call it an eco-social economy. It's very well described, I think, in the eco-socialist literature, but it's effectively, or, you know, maybe a better term for people is just post-capitalist, a kind of post-capitalist, post-growth economy. And I guess that's, that's kind of the way I think about it. So, you know, definitely not a reversion to 20th century communist states with totalitarian control, etc. Yeah, no, I, I wasn't meaning that really. I, it was more when I say that people intuit the, the radicalism, I, I suppose I mean more in terms of what follows politically and, and strategically. Like there's the question of, you know, how, how on earth do we get to that desirable end state, given the, the forces arrayed against us? And, and we know from history that in moments of extremists, capitalism will respond in profoundly violent ways. I mean, you know, the example of Chile springs to mind in, in particular. And I suppose it's that really. I, I, you know, I wonder whether 
sure we're facing a very dark and horrific future, but at least in the global north, quite a lot of people, that's not necessarily, that doesn't seem like that's, you know, that's tomorrow. And that, you know, it's future generations who will see even even worse than we will. And whether, yeah, the idea of, of trying to engage in the struggles and confrontations that would be required to move to this different situation just seems, you know, a bit fanciful, given the balance of forces in, in, in our societies at the moment. Yeah, no, um, I agree. I mean, at, <laughs> at, at present, it's very clear that the political formations necessary to bring about such a transition in the global north are not there. And I think there's a couple of reasons for this, okay? One is that to the extent that people place hope in the environmentalist movements to achieve something like this, which makes sense in the sense of like, if we know that a post-growth transition or degrowth is necessary in the global north in order to achieve environmental goals like the Paris Climate Agreement, okay, then you might hope that the environmentalist movement is going to be the one calling for this. Now, the, the problem is I think that in general, the environmentalist movement is not like does not have a sufficiently radical analysis, right? They tend to have this more, I mean, there tends to be a, a more dominant strain of bourgeois environmentalism that sees this primarily as a question of individual consumption or even population, which is really problematic, right? Or this blaming the global south business, which we see from UK climate negotiators, okay? This is like, this is not adequate analysis. <laughs> so we need a structural analysis that recognizes capitalism as a problem, recognizes that growthism in the global north is a problem, and seeks to address these problems. And um, I think this is beginning to change in the environmentalist movement. I think that we're, you know, we're seeing the emergence of some of this analysis in you know, Sunrise, in the DSA in the United States, in uh, Extinction Rebellion to some extent as well. And that's encouraging. But the other issue is that the environmentalist movement simply doesn't have the political power to pull off the kind of transition that we need, right? In order for that to happen, I think you need to have labor unions on board because Extinction Rebellion and Fridays for Future may be able to shut down roads in central London from time to time, but they don't have the capacity to pull off something like a general strike, which is the kind of persuasion <laughs> that you would need, right? And so the labor movement does have something closer to that capacity, but the problem with the, with the labor movement is that they tend to buy into this narrative that growth is necessary to improve wages and employments, okay? And in so doing, they align themselves with capital in calling for more growth, okay? And so I think that what's necessary here is conversations with the unions to illuminate possibilities for achieving their goals of improved livelihoods and improved employment directly without relying on this alliance with capitalism towards growth, okay? And so again, here, like shortening the working week, decommodifying social goods, distributing income more fairly with living wages and maximum wages, a climate job guarantee to ensure that anyone who wants to can contribute to, you know, can retrain and contribute to the most essential projects of our, you know, collective projects of our generation. Things like this would directly address the union's needs in terms of employment and livelihoods without growth, as I've described. And so we're going to need this kind of alliance between a radical environmentalist analysis and a labor movement that is broken with growthism in favor of more radical political demands for public services and living wages and so on. The obvious first step is to try to build that kind of alliance. The other thing I will say here is that, is that the other key force to pay attention to is social movements in the global south which have a much more robust analysis of the crisis we face than anyone in the global north at present does, okay? So if you read, for example, the, um, 
the People's Agreement of Cochabamba, which is like this consensus document signed by thousands of social movements from across the global south in 2010. They are very clear that the ecological crisis, the climate crisis, is being driven by capitalism, is overwhelmingly being driven by the rich states of the global north and their imperialist tendencies. And we have to address these underlying structural causes in order to proceed, okay, in order to achieve a kind of just transition. So they're effectively degrowth avant la lettre, right? They don't use the term degrowth, but their demands are, are for a degrowth in the global north, reduction of resource use and energy use in the global north, calling for the global north to abandon growthism and decolonize the atmosphere, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so these movements are robust. They, are, they have significant potential power and movements in the global north need to be aligning with them supporting their demands, creating alliances, and, uh, and looking at, at coordinated action. And so with something like this, an alliance between a radical environmentalist analysis, labor unions, as well as anti-colonial social movements in the global south, you have the makings of a kind of internationalist movement that has the potential, I think, to achieve the kind of transition that we're calling for. And I think that's where we need to, uh, to start focusing our efforts. Going back to the point about the unions, do you think that it's a problem that can be solved simply through dialogue and, and pointing out the ways in which, as you say, environmentally just outcomes can be compatible with protecting people's livelihoods and, and actually improving people's lives? Or, or do you think that part of the reason some parts of the unions take the view that they do and, and are attached to the model of, of growthism is to do with the political pessimism and, and they don't perceive wider forces out in, in our society that can work with them? in order to achieve gains that aren't just gains within the existing system. Because I, I think, you know, obviously there's, there's a great deal of pressure on the unions to think about the day-to-day and to think about short-term gains and to, to think always in terms of jobs. Yeah, exactly. No, I think that, um, look, clearly aligning with capital and calling for growth is sort of an easier way to deal with the, the core political problem here, right? In the sense of, like, if we just allow capital to grow the pie, and then this will allow us to, it makes it easier for us to claim a bigger share of it. So we sort of receive the crumbs of trickle down, right, from capital. This is obviously politically easier than trying to fight the capitalist class and their propaganda machines <laughs> calling for something like um, universal basic services and living wages and a radical redistribution of income, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like, that's the latter is clearly what we what we need to be doing, but it's more difficult. And you're right, it requires a stronger movement than the unions, I think, presently have, probably. But look, we have to start with that. Like, I think that we're going to have to recognize that in an era of ecological breakdown, you know, the reality is this. Do we, you know, ultimately it's going to come to this question. Do we constrain the resource use of the poor in order to maintain elites' privilege and accumulation, Right. Or do we constrain the resource use of the rich in order to ensure that all of us can have decent lives and, and transition to an ecologically stable economy, right? That this is effectively the choice that we face. And I think that we just need to, we, we need to have the clarity to opt for the latter, right? Which is the eco-socialist's degrowth position rather than the, the ridiculous kind of, well, I guess kind of imperialist eco-fascist <laughs> approach of, of, um, of constraining resource use among the poor in order to support elite privilege, right? That has to go. That has to go. Thinking about different future possible outcomes and, and perhaps one of the less uh, appetizing prospects that you describe in the book, I mean, you, you make this very interesting point that 
it's not impossible that we could see a situation where state coercion is able to prevent business from sort of intensively exploiting nature, which would seem on the face of it to be what we're aiming for and that that would have a straightforwardly very positive outcome. But you make the argument that so long as capitalism exists and so long as the growth imperative exists, intensive exploitation of nature will need to be it will need to be substituted for something else. And, and, and you talk about what that kind of substitution might look like. Could you, could you describe that point? Yeah, look, I think this is really important. The basic principle of capital accumulation is that you have to depress input costs as much as possible, right? This is how you, you, know, you maintain accumulation. So you can, you can cheapen right, either nature or you can cheapen labor, effectively. You can imagine a scenario where elites maybe agree, let's, uh, let's cap resource use, but try to maintain capital accumulation at the same time, then what you're going to have is a doubling down on the exploitation of labor, right? Because you have to be able to get your surplus from somewhere. And so if not from nature, then it's going to be from, from labor. And so, yeah, so I think this is the key, the key thing here is that you have to deal with the underlying mechanism, which is the logic of capital accumulation and the logic of cheapening <laughs> nature and labor. You've got to be able to get rid of that because otherwise... You know, if you if you try to prevent the cheapening of labor, you're going to have the cheapening of nature. If you try to prevent the cheapening of nature, you'll have the cheapening of labor, and both are unacceptable. So, uh, we need a more coherent response to that. I think another point you make, a, a very striking point about what it might look like to have the massive rollout of renewable technology, but still in the context of capitalism, is that you write in the book: if we don't take precautions, clean energy firms could become as destructive as fossil fuel companies. Obviously, on the face of it, that sounds pretty outlandish and, and a very counterintuitive claim. Can you explain how you, you justify that statement? Yeah, right. So let's think about this. So renewable energy, as important as it is, and obviously I'm hugely in support of it, <laughs> uh, we need to roll it out as fast as possible. It does not come out of thin air, okay? It comes from materials, right? So you need to have a kind of material infrastructure in order to capture wind, wind power and solar power and hydropower, et cetera. And that material infrastructure has to be extracted. And this also, by the way, is true of batteries. Batteries are an essential technology here for a renewable energy system. And the minerals that are necessary for mass battery rollout obviously must be extracted from somewhere. Crucially also, the majority of this, of this material will be extracted from the global south, which is where most of it resides. Okay? So we have to pay attention to this question. If our analysis is solely about transitioning to renewables, but keeping everything else the same, so the, the existing arrangements of increasing energy use, okay, then uh, what you're looking at is a need for ever-increasing material extraction in order to supply that energy use. And this is not feasible because of the ecological consequences of material extraction, which are notable, and also because of the social consequences of material extraction. Like, look again, like, at uh, where, I mean, cobalt is key to this. Look at uh, what the social consequences of cobalt extraction are in the Congo. Look at how a need for cheap lithium led to recent coup mongering in Bolivia, right? I mean, this is the kind of thing you would expect in a situation where you're scrambling for the, for the materials for renewable energy rollout. So we, we want to pay attention to that. And a, a coherent response is to say, yes, let's have renewable energy, but let's also not grow energy demand indefinitely. Okay, let's have a rational discussion about how much energy is needed to meet human needs at a high standard. And where we exceed that, then let's scale down energy use. Not only does this allow us to transition to renewables more quickly, but it also means that uh, the material impacts of renewable extraction 
are, are reduced, okay? And that's important. So we have to have like an ecologically coherent and socially just policy when it comes to renewable deployment. What do you make of the idea of the so-called circular economy and, and, and this idea that we could very significantly reduce the environmental impact of, of the economy by uh, creating close to uh, closed loops of production? whereby a huge amount of recycling and, and repair is happening, uh, thereby reducing the necessity of, of current levels of, of resource extraction. Yeah, so um, because it's kind of a big, it's a big uh, concept these days, there's a lot of hope being placed in the idea of, of, of circular economy principles. And I'm, I'm hugely in favor, actually, of, of, uh, of this push for a circular economy. Clearly, we need to recycle as much as possible and, and close the loop wherever possible, et cetera, et cetera. But there's some significant limitations to this theory to the extent that it has been leveraged uh, in support of the idea of green growth, okay? So my point here and what I argue in the book is that we need circular economy principles, but they are not compatible with growthism, okay? And the reason is because, is because this, the majority of our material use cannot be recycled, right? So 44% is basically biomass inputs in food and energy, which are irreversibly degraded. 27% is, goes into net additions to stocks of buildings and infrastructure. So only a small fraction of our total material use actually has recyclable potential or circular potential. So even if we recycled all of that, then as long as we're pursuing aggregate economic growth, then total resource use is going to continue to rise. Okay. With the circular economy talk sort of deployed as a way of warding off reduction in, in, in uh, material throughput. That's exactly right. So we'll talk about, we're going to talk about circular economy principles and recycling and so on. But in the meantime, as long as we're pursuing growth, aggregate resource extraction and use is going to continue to rise. And so this is going to be, this is a significant problem. So in fact, we're seeing this already. There have been dramatic improvements in recycling technology over the past few years. And yet, recycling rates have actually declined because of aggregate resource use increase, okay? So basically growth is outstripping our ability to improve our recycling capacity, right? So, so it's not our technology that's the problem here, it's growth. And so yes, we need to pursue circular principles, but we also need to abandon growth as an objective. So these, we have to see these two as, as part of the same process here. But there's also actually another another issue I want to uh, briefly mention, which is that right, like capitalism requires cheapening inputs and externalizing costs. Okay, this is very clear. And the thing about a circular economy is the idea is to internalize costs. Okay, right. So because you're recycling materials you use, and so therefore you're not extracting them for free anymore. So it, it costs money to sort of to uh, to produce the materials in the first place. And what this does basically is uh, is it reduces your ability to cheapen inputs and therefore reduces the rate of capital accumulation and growth. And that's okay. <laughs> we we should accept such an outcome. We just it just means we have to abandon the idea that what we need is more capital accumulation and more growth. So circular economic principles are actually are actually in conflict with growthism. And we should recognize that and opt for the former, <laughs> right? So I think that's kind of the way that we need to approach it. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.